This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and especially the young ladies and gentlemen that are here. And a very, very warm welcome to this wonderful event. Uh, my name is Nicolette Jones. Among other things, I review the children's books for the Sunday Times. And I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you a great favorite of mine, uh, somebody whose uh, who's recent event, a uh, similar event to this, was described to me by a member of the audience as the best children's event I've ever been to. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Oh, golly. You might, your money back if you don't agree. No. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. yes. Cressida Cowell, as we know, is the creator, uh, both the writer and the illustrator, of Hiccup Horrendous Haddock III, uh, a very small Viking with a very big name, who first appeared in print in 2002, since when there have been nine uh, Hiccup books, of which the most recent is this one, uh, How to Break a Dragon's Heart. Um, it is also now, as many of you will know, a DreamWorks movie in 3D. Cressida's other books include the Emily, Emily Brown picture books, uh, including uh, This Rabbit Belongs to Emily Brown, in which the Queen steals Emily's pet rabbit, Stanley. And the latest of these in the series is Emily Brown and the Elephant Emergency. I'm going to hand you over now to Cressida, uh, who will tell you about her own childhood and about how her hero came to be. I also want to welcome Rachel here, who is interpreting in, Britain, in uh, British Sign Language. After Cressida's presentation, in about half an hour or so, there will be a chance for you to ask questions. And now, a big hand for Cressida Cowell. Thank you very, very much, <coughs> Nicolette. Thank you very much for that intro. And um, I do hope I'm, I'm going to be all right now. I've been given that big, big, <coughs> bigging up there. Because um, I always think I, I kind of ramble on rather. Um, and, and I may do that. Just to, And I have been known even to fall off the stage because uh, I get overexcited. Um, but luckily, this is a really small stage, so I won't hurt myself. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about... Uh, what gave me the idea for writing the books? I'm going to talk for a while, and then I'm going to try and give you, and then I'm going to give you a little uh, clip about uh, for, of the film, and then you can ask any old questions you like about um, writing books or you know having your books made into a film or anything. Because I always find that the questions are the most interesting bit. How did I get started? I'm thinking about this quite a lot at the moment because I'm trying to think of a new series. And it's, it's quite scary. Blank bit of paper, you could write anything. You could write anything at all. It could be funny, it could be sad. It could be a funny book like, you know, Captain Underpants, or it could be sad, or it could be, you know, about anything at all. Um, and it's quite scary starting off. What gave me the idea, it could be any length, it could be a really long book like War and Peace, it could be, you know, a really short book. Um, so where did I get started on How to Train Your Dragon eight years ago? Because uh, I've now written eight of them, it's an awful lot. Uh, uh, <coughs> uh, but eight years ago, where did I start? Um, and I start here with this picture, which is me. 
age nine years old. Um, and I show you this picture partly because I, I think it's rather nice. For, uh, I'm about the age of a lot of you here. And it's rather nice for you to see. One of the reasons it's great to come along and see an author speak is that you can think, you know, once upon a time, that author was a, a kid just like me. And maybe one day I could be an author, you know, uh, just like Cressida, you know. And I, I never met an author when I was a little girl. And I would have loved to have met an author because I thought they were kind of a bit like pop stars or something, you know. <laughs> they were written by some other being. Um, and so if I could just have met an author, I would have known they were just a normal person, just like me, you know, a mummy and a, a, an ordinary, rather scatty person. Um, uh, and so I could have known that that's, that's what I could have been, yeah? And so I think it's rather nice to think there's some kid out there, uh, you know, who loves reading, who loves writing, who might be an author one day, yeah? If you, if you love writing, if you love reading, it's a wonderful job. It's a fantastic job. I'm so lucky, I feel, so fortunate to be able to have a job making things up, <laughs> which is really what an author is, a, a maker-upper. And I am... I, I got this picture from an old album of my dad's that I had to get the other day because um, DreamWorks asked for a picture of me as a little girl. And I found, I, we found this old album in a drawer and I was always reading, always reading. Here I'm writing, but in all the pictures, picture after picture, I was reading. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. I spent a lot of time. If you want to be an author one day, Read, that's the one thing. Do lots and lots of reading. As much stuff as you possibly can. And Stephen King, who's a horror writer, a very successful horror writer, said this, and he's read a great book called On Writing. And it said, the one thing you should do as a writer is read. Books that people say, oh, that's not a very good book, doesn't matter. You know, books that you don't even like particularly. You, you, you find out ways of writing through reading masses and masses of books. That's how you learn to write. And also by starting to write. I'm writing here. I, I, I would have been writing. I, I did write about Vikings as a child, as a nine-year-old. I started loads of things. I very rarely finished them. And lots of children write to me saying, I'm always starting books, but I never finish them. Don't worry. It doesn't matter. You're busy. You've got school. I've got nothing else to do all day. Yeah? <laughs> My kids go off to school. And then what else am I going to do? You know, do the washing up? No, leave that. I'm right. Yeah? So I I've got nothing else to do. You're busy. You know, but start. Start. Start writing and, you know, uh, uh, you know practice. That's what you need to do. Lots of writing um, and uh, reading. I am in this picture reading. The person who is not, I'm not writing, sorry, writing at this one. The person who is not in this picture is my younger brother, Casper. And he wouldn't have been reading because he didn't, okay? <laughs> He's made me promise not to say this to anybody because my brother Casper is now a philosophy professor. <laughs> And, uh, and he thinks it's not very cool for a philosophy professor to be, you know, to be, for everybody to know uh, <coughs> that he never read as a child. But he didn't. I know. I was there. He never read. He didn't read till he was about 15 and he read Catcher in the Rye and then he was off, you know. And now he has to read, you know, his philosophy, he has to read a lot. Why didn't he read? That was, an, that was the starting point for these books. Why didn't my brother Casper read? He was a very bright boy, philosophy professor, a lot brighter than I am. Yeah, very bright boy. He read a bit of Guinness Book of Records. 
Guinness Book of Records, he liked facts, he, uh, he read a bit of that. Oh, he did read Asterix, lots of pictures, very visual, yeah, visual kind of person. So my starting point for writing these books was to write a book that Casper would have read when he was nine. That was my starting point. That's a great starting point because you've got an idea of a reader in your head. So I wanted to write something that would have got him reading, yeah? So I wanted to write something that was uh, <coughs> full of adventure, funny as well. I, 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 like to <laughs> I like to set myself an impossible task. I always think it's good, good for the brain. <coughs> set yourself an impossible task. I wanted to write a book that was funny, uh, exciting, but also moving, yeah? That, that, that actually moved you with characters that you really cared about. And with lots of different styles of writing, Lo lots of books for, they call them reluctant readers, are, are, are kind of rather dumbed down. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want that. I wanted it to make you think as well. So, uh, <clears throat> so I wanted, you know, storylines, that you uh, people that you really cared about in the books, because I think that's the most important thing. If you care about the character, you mind what happens to them, and then you want to read on. Also, really punchy storylines, um, and funny. And, and the other thing that I told you about Asterix that I thought was very important was that it would look exciting. There's a big pink paper called the Financial Times, which I cannot read. I look at the paper, and when I try and read it, something in my brain switches to off. Yeah? I can't make myself read it. It's all those little teeny-weeny columns. It just switches my brain to off. And I kind of imagine that there might be, for a child, a big, big book with chunks of text. It can just look, switch your brain to off. In the same way, I try to make my book, that was my starting book, look as little like the Financial Times as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that was my aim, yeah? So I tried to make the actual physical book look like it had been down to the ocean and come back up again, and maybe dragons had, you know, scrawled it. You know, there's big rips here. Um, dragons had scrawled on it, and, and I tried to rip through the text with lots of different illustrations and do a really scrawly style of illustration and ink blots. And sometimes when I'm doing the illustrations, I actually set fire to the paper, and at which point my, my children say, Mummy, mummy, do that outside, yeah, because <laughs> they think I'm a little out of control sometimes. Anyway, so, so I try and really rip through the pages and use a really scrawly style uh, to make the book look exciting, and that's why I use all those capitals, which sometimes think is, people think is a bit ir irritating, but actually it's to make the text lively, make it look jump, jump, jumpy. You know, not like the Financial Times, yeah? Also, so it looks like Hiccup has illustrated it himself, like it's graffiti uh, or something. God, we are nearly a quarter of an hour into this talk, and I'm only on the first picture. <laughs> okay, so I've got the sort of, what the kind of book I'm, I'm, I'm writing, the kind of length I'm writing, um, but it's not about anything yet, yeah? Um, and... When <coughs> I'm talking about going back <coughs> uh, to, to, to the beginning, how I came up with the idea, because it's quite a weird idea <laughs> if you think about it. Vikings living in a world in which dragons really exist. Okay. <coughs> I got this idea from something in my childhood. 
which when you've read the books, you think, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, Cressida isn't a Viking. Uh, she's not a dragon. You know, how could it have <coughs> been something in her childhood? But if, uh, in fact, it was something. I know a, a lot about Vikings, not just what I've read in, in books, because of, of where I spent a lot of my childhood. And I think that's quite important as a writer, particularly if you're writing fantasy, to root it. If you think about a, a writer being a really good liar, and that's what I think being a writer is, a really, you can tell, whoppers in a way that people really believe you, yeah? A really good liar, that's what writing is. It's good if you ground your lie on a grain of truth, on something that is true, yeah? And, and so, as it happens, I, I know a great deal about being at sea. I've been at sea all my childhood. Um, I know a, a, about being cold and wet. I spent a lot of the time as a child on this, this here, this tiny, uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland, yeah? Uh, and that's where I am. It's a part of an archipelago of islands in the Inner Hebrides. And when, <coughs> this is it, this is the island. An island so small that when you stood on the top of it, you could see sea all around you. Um, I actually, most of the time I was in London. My dad was a businessman. But he was a mad keen twitcher, a bird watcher. He loves wilderness. He's quite a... Um, He's quite, a, he's quite a exciting person. He, he loves danger and adventure and wilderness. Uh, and the other grain of truth, as you will realize as I'm talking, the grain of truth that I, I put this, built this book on is my relationship with my father. I'm telling you all in, in secret, obviously, 500 people. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't say. But yes, again, if you base something on something real, it often... You, you, those feelings come into the book and, you know, the reader gets them. Anyway, so when I was very little, we would be dropped off on this island by a local fisherman and picked up again two weeks later. <laughs> they were crazy! They were mad! I mean, what happened if somebody broke her leg? Yeah? They didn't have a mobile phone. This was the 70s. In fact, they don't even, you can't get a mobile phone connection even now. Even now, they have to go out in the boat and kind of somewhere, you know, just off Staffer somewhere. I'm giving it away. Uh, just off Staffer somewhere, they get a phone connection, yeah? But then, they didn't have a boat. They had no boat. They were crazy, yeah? But every year, up until I was about nine, when they had a house built we would be, just be dropped off by a local fisherman and picked up again two weeks later. I had some sense that this was a dangerous thing to do, <laughs> which I often did with my parents. It was sometimes being, growing up with my parents was like going on a roller coaster ride with no, you know, uh, when they did get a boat, we were always going out in storms. My dad was the most appalling sailor. <laughs> he had no idea. One day, he, he tied the, the boat to a lobster pot instead of a boy <laughs> and wondered why it drifted out. Yeah. Another time, another time, we were, <clears throat> we were sort of, he, the engine had conked out. My mother was on the island, face like granite. 
because she told him to check it, and he had. And he was drifting out to sea, okay, and there was a big storm coming, and by the luck of the Irish, he isn't Irish, but he might as well be, he's got so much luck, he threw out, he, he was, wanted to give himself a bit of time, he threw out the anchor with the vague idea of hitting the bottom, and he hooked a lobster pot that he had put out too deep, okay, in the whole of the ocean. He fixed on a lobster pot that he had put down too deep and was sunk, yeah? And so he got the extra five minutes to mend the engine before he was dragged out to sea and never seen again. Anyway, that gives you a small picture of life with my father. But on the other hand, what heaven. Having a whole island to yourself. I was the luckiest kid in the whole world. No roads, ev everything to explore, islands. You know, we went off in little boats and just discovered little coves and nothing named. And, you know, little ruined houses. This is the house that they built in the end. Little ruined houses where people had lived, you know, before. And you start thinking, who lived here? Who lived here? The Vikings would have come here. The Vikings, this was the first place the Vikings came to when they invaded the British Isles. The Inebrides was the first place they came to and the last place they left. And I used to imagine when I was lying on the top of that island, I used to imagine, what would I do if I saw a Viking sail on the horizon? What would I do? I would have hid <laughs> in a cave, which is what people generally did, but, you know, pretty scary. And we were living like... Vikings lived. This is the house that my dad had built on the island. And, when, and once he had the house built, we'd stay out for the whole summer. Holidays were longer in the 70s. I don't think you'd get away with it <laughs> in the 70s. We stayed out the whole summer. And then you have to catch food to... If you stay out the whole summer... Oh, this, my clicker isn't working. Uh, <clears throat> if you have to catch food... For the whole summer, have to catch food to, to, for the whole summer. You go out in a boat and you have to put out lobster pots and, and things like that. And this is where, going out, there were real monsters living in the ocean, yeah? Uh, this is my dad and he's photographing this. Okay, a killer whale. Uh, but of course, when you, you didn't get this photo. Because <laughs> when you're in real life, the photo you get is this, this little smudge. <laughs> but what he was photographing was this, a killer whale. And what you don't see in the photo is me in the background saying, Papa, why do they call them killer whales? And he's saying, oh, they wouldn't hurt a fly. Human beings are so mean. Killer whales are charming creatures. Lovely, lovely creatures. Okay. Another time, we put the lobster pot down. And picking up a lobster pot tells you a lot about writing. It tells you about suspense, yeah? Because you don't know what's going to be in the lobster pot. And as you're picking up the lobster pot, because the sea is a big place and strange things live in there, you don't know what's going to be in it. And one time, we were picking up the lobster pot and we over the side, and this big black snake with fangs like this lunged forward at my dad, snapped, missed, luck of the Irish, um, and he looked back and he said, get back at the top of the boat. And it was a conger eel, a six-foot-long snake, yeah? And he dragged it, we dragged it back on the boat, and, 
and took it back to the island, and it took my dad an hour to kill it with a knife. One hour. Because you have to be careful of the fangs, you know. One hour to kill it with a knife. And then we wrapped it in foil. I think we had foil. And uh, we put it on a fire, and we smoked it, and we ate it, and it was delicious. <laughs> my children have trouble eating fish fingers. <laughs> but when you are hungry, you will eat, yeah? Uh, <clears throat> which is another thing I learned about being on the island. That's a conger eel. Our conger eel was black, actually. That's a brown one, but you can see, and you can't see the fangs, but it was bad. Another thing that we found in the tangle nets was this. What is this? Yeah, what is this? Uh, nobody knew. We found these huge, great big things that looked like crayfish but were bigger at the bottom, uh, you know, in our tangle nets, and nobody knew what they were. Okay, the local fishermen said, oh, I can't do a Scottish accent. I'm sorry. Oh, well, we've been fishing here for 50 years or something, and I've never seen anything like it before in my life. I find that quite exciting, that there are things living in the ocean that even the adults don't know what they are. Yeah? Again, we ate them, even though we didn't know what they were, and they could have been nuclear crayfish, couldn't they? It could have been crayfish with them nibbling on some nuclear... Oh, anyway, we're still here. We're fine. They were yummy, just like lobsters, but yummier. <coughs> but what I found exciting about that whole thing is that there are things in the world... We don't know everything. There's a limit to what we know. And that's why I thought of the dragons. And Vikings were... Vikings really, you know, they, they, uh, <coughs> they were mad about dragons, Vikings. They were magical creatures to, to, uh, to Vikings because they lived, they could exist in the fire, in the air, in land, and in water, in all four elements. So they were magical creatures to the, to the Vikings. And I started with the idea, this was my starting point, what if dragons really existed? What if they had existed in true life? Here comes the good liar bit, the imagination. If you take a wacky idea, often authors start with a question, Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton's book. Uh, <coughs> I think it's Michael Crichton. Anyway, he starts with the idea, what if you could bring dinosaurs back to life by, you know, finding, extracting the DNA from some fly caught in amber, yeah? And then he writes Jurassic. We often start with a question, what if, you know, uh, and, and J.K. Rowling, what if there was a real magical world that we don't know about? That's your start, starting point. And mine was, what if dragons really existed? But what I try and do is then you know, go through the logical steps, make, make that feel like it really could happen. Lots of people write to me and they say, your stories are completely crazy, but the thing that I found so strange is that I believe them. They're so weirdly believable. And that's about being a good liar, of, of thinking, how can I make this really believable? For starters, I thought dragons wouldn't just be like these green things that you store, saw in storybooks. If they had evolved, there would have been all sorts of different species of dragons, like dinosaurs, yeah? And they would have evolved to adapt to their environment. You think of the detail. Yeah, so if I'm... I'm thinking about this writing. I'm about to go off again, but never mind. I, talk, I think about this in my writing a lot. If I am writing, okay, Stoic had a big... No, or Gobba had a big red beard. You can't really see that beard in your mind's eye. If I write... Uh, stoic 
had a beard like a hedgehog struck by lightning, you can see that beard, yeah? Or a beard like exploding fireworks or something like that. You can see that beard in, in your mind's eye. And that's part of what writing is about. Is, and think about that when you're doing your writing, you know, children, you know, trying to put in the details that bring something alive in the reader's head. Um, oh, yeah. And, and to, so to make up my dragon species, I go often to the real world, which is weirder than any author could make up, really. What is this? This is a blobfish. <laughs> it is a fish that looks like a grumpy old man. <laughs> if, I, if, I had, if I'd made, you'd have said I'd made that. If I'd, if I'd just put that in a book, you'd say, oh, Crestacow, she's gone off on one. You know, I mean, that is just so unlikely, a fish that looks like a grumpy old man. But that is, you know, a real fish. Um, so I go for these... For, for making up my dragons, I go to the real world. I love those things like Life on Earth and all those programs. Uh, I, I, I go to, I do a lot of research on that. So this is a weird kind of jellyfish-like creature with eyes. Yeah. And, and, and for that, that was the inspiration for my dragon at the end of How to Be a Pirate, which I sort of see through. And you could see, ooh, it's a bit gruesome. You can see its insides and, you know, you can see the dragons it's digested going through it. You know, that was my inspiration for that. And then, you know, uh, oh, yes, a basking shark. I have swum in the harbour with a basking shark. Again, with my dad saying, oh, basking sharks, you know, they're vegetarian. <laughs> and I say, but it's as long as from here to that exit. And its mouth is open. How does it know it's vegetarian if it's just <laughs> hoovering you up? It's not going to bother to ask, are you meat? Are you vegetable? You know? Anyway, so, but that was my inspiration for a dragon in, in this one, How to Break a Dragon's Heart, okay? My inspiration for a dragon that is a bit like a giant ray and it sort of swoops Oh, yes, giant, thank you, darling, giant beater, that's what it is. And it, who, it sails through the, the woods at, with its mouth open, hoovering up bees, yeah? Um, and, they, and in the movie, they took my idea, you know, they also, you know, created, they, they took some of my dragons and then they created their own dragons. They had a lot of fun doing it, and I'll show you bits. You know, uh, created their own dragons out of creatures that really exist and putting them together like they're a real species. Um, and this is another example. This is a real rock face on the island. Yeah? Can you see the profile? Isn't that extraordinary? The profile of that rock looks like a man's face. Isn't that weird? I used to look at that for hours. How does it look like a man's face? And this was the starting point for the beginning of how to train your dragon. When Hiccup is standing at the bottom of Wild Dragon Cliff and he looks up and it's in the shape of a face and in the right eye of that face is the dragon nursery, yeah? And he has to climb up the cliff in the dragon nursery. 3,000 dragons are sleeping and he has to climb into the, into the, into the cave and steal a sleeping dragon, yeah? Again, I took a real place and I just made it hugely bigger and added on a whole load of other bits, yeah? Um, hang on. <coughs> the next thing I do when I'm, I'm writing 
and lots of writers do this, is I draw a map. Yeah. Loads of writers do this. Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote a fantastic book, Treasure Island, love Treasure Island, please read it. Um, before he'd even thought of the story, he drew the map and he said, as I drew the map of Treasure Island, Long John Silver came creeping out of the map at me. Four children, you know, 150 years ago, in a, they might as well have been on an island. Might as well, they were in the middle of the moors, in a sea of heather, no telly, like me, on the island. No telly, nothing to do. They drew maps all day long, yeah? And wrote up, made up stories about, you know, the people in those maps, the people who, and they, they, were, they drew up, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, when you, family trees and huge stories. Those four children all grew up to be writers, the Brontes. Uh, they all grew up to be writers, yeah? Not surprisingly, two of them are some of the greatest writers we've ever had. So uh, it's a great way to start. You know, if you look at the beginning of loads of, of books, um, Lord of the Rings, it'll be a map, and it makes an imaginary place seem like a real place. I know exactly, by drawing the Isle of Burke, I know how long it takes to get from Hooligan Village to Hooligan Harbour. It makes, you know, it gives you... A, uh, it makes an imaginary place seem more real because you know how long it would physically take to, to get from one place to another. I bet you J.K. Rowling has drawn a map of Hogwarts so that she knows how long it takes to get from X dormitory to the other dormitory. So it feels like a real place. Stanley Kubrick, who is a film director, but we're very similar, us writers and film directors, who, wrote, who <coughs> did a great film, which you won't have seen, <laughs> called The Shining. <laughs> but it is a fantastic film, horror film. He drew a map. He's quite an obsessive, a bit like a writer, a bit of an obsessive. He drew a map of this haunted hotel. So he knew exactly where, you know, how the, you know, little, how, how, how the, it made the place feel like a real place. Like it was a real place. And the little boy goes through the corridors on a, on a little, um, uh, in a little car. Super scary. Anyway, um, but it makes the place treating somewhere. And J.K. Rowling, if you apparently, if you rang her from the film set to say, oh, we're not quite sure how this character is related to the other, she'd fax back the whole of the family tree going back to, I don't know. You know, so writers often know all these things. They do all these background stuff to make the fantasy seem really real. But it's also a great thing to do as a kid. I go into schools and I set them that. Draw a map of your imaginary place and then make up a story about it. Because, you know, here's this kid who's drawn a map uh, of Skeleton Creek. And then here he's drawn on the map Dead Man's Cell. And he starts thinking, why is the dead man in that cell? What is he doing in there? You know, it gives you ideas as well as, as, uh, as making your story realistic. Um, okay. Uh, and, and then I started off with just the map of my island, and then I start drawing maps of my whole world. And you know, each of and each of the stories takes place on a different map. So Berserk, this is you know, uh, and, uh, How to Break a Dragon's Heart that takes part, um, place in the woods of Berserk. Hiccup hasn't yet got to tomorrow, where the story will end. I have written an ending to, these to this whole series of stories, I have to say. The story will end on tomorrow, yeah? Not quite yet. My editor just said, three more books, Cressida. You said three. You promised. <laughs> She's sitting just there. <laughs> just took me out to lunch and said, three. You promised three. 
<laughs> it probably will take me three, because <laughs> there's so many loose ends to tie up. Anyway, but um, there is an ending, because it's a story that needs an ending. Some stories don't need an ending. But here, there is something in this story that says it needs an ending, yeah? Because it's about Hiccup becoming a hero, because it's about growing up. The whole thing is about growing up. I'm going to read you the beginning of How to Train Your Dragon, just to remind you, this is the first thing that I wrote about How to Train Your Dragon. There were dragons when I was a boy. There were great, grim sky dragons that <coughs> nested on the clifftops like gigantic, scary birds. Little brown scuttly dragons that hunted down the mice and rats in well-organized packs. Preposterously huge sea dragons that were 20 times as big as the big blue whale and who killed for the fun of it. Who is speaking here? This is Hiccup speaking as an old man. Yeah? You will have to take my word for it, for the dragons are disappearing so fast they may soon become extinct. Nobody knows what is happening. They are crawling back into the sea from whence they came, leaving not a bone, not a fang in the earth for the men of the future to remember them by. So, in order that these amazing creatures should not be forgotten, I will tell this true story from my childhood. What a liar. <laughs> I was not the sort of boy who could train a dragon with a mere lifting of an eyebrow. I was not a natural at the heroism business. I had to work at it. This is the story of becoming a hero the hard way. Yeah? That's the beginning. Why did I start like that? Why didn't I start just in the middle, jumping in the middle of the story? You know, with Hiccup as a boy. I did it for a reason, which is that the story is being told. It's about growing up. It's about a child growing up. And growing up is wonderful and glorious because you are moving up and into a new, exciting world. And it is also sort of sad because you are leaving something behind. Yeah? So this is what this the way of writing this is called bittersweet. It's bittersweet. There's a whole thing going on through this book, which are bittersweet, sort of uh, wonderful and uplifting and also a bit sad at the same time, yeah? And the story is told from two points of view. It's told from Hiccup's point of view as a little boy. Actually, it's told from three points of view. Hiccup as an old man, yeah, reflecting on his childhood. Reflected. That, that's the thinking bit. Remember I said I was writing a story that was going to be funny and exciting and cliffhangery, but also makes you think. It's, it, it's about growing up. It makes you think about growing up. It's also told from Stoic's point of view. Okay, the father looking at the son who is different from him. Yeah? And I do this as well because I'm writing this. I'm imagining a parent reading this with their kid. I like the kind of books that are fun to read with your children. <laughs> there are some books I will not read with my children because <laughs> they're too boring. <laughs> yeah, I like the kind of books that are exciting to read with your kid and then you can get them excited and then they might go off and read it on their own. It's another great way to start reading. So I write about it, uh, you know, thinking from Stoic's point of view as well. And also because I'm a mother myself, I know, okay, this... Uh, I know that sometimes it's difficult when your child, Hiccup is not like his father. His father, probably got, is this huge, big, this is Hiccup. 
And he's a character who I, I work very hard to make him a character that you care about, yeah? Because it doesn't matter what you throw at people. And I'm always throwing stuff at poor old Hiccup. He's always, because I always put him in situations which are impossible situations to get out of, to, you know, rev up my brain. You know, so at the end of How to Train Your Dragon, he just doesn't meet the big dragon. The dragon actually swallows him. I go a bit too far. <laughs> and then I have to get him out of it. I can't remember how I got him out of it, that one. But that's good. It keeps you on your, on your toes. You put him in an impossible situation, and then you have to work on get, getting him out of it. And I'm always doing it with the baddie, Alvin. He's always, oh, goodness. I can't remember where. I think I left him in a fire last time. And I still, I'm halfway through the next book, and I still can't work out how to get him out of the fire. So hard. Anyway, so <clears throat> I put, but it doesn't matter what you could do to them. You can put them down to the boss. If you don't care about the character, why are you going to stick with the book? So I make Hiccup, a, I think he's a very, I love Hiccup. He, I, I wish, I'm sort of, there's a bit of me in Hiccup, but actually, not really. <laughs> There's a bit of me in Hiccup's relationship with Stoic, but Hiccup is such a sweetheart. He's so wise, and actually he's a bit like my husband, <laughs> who's a lovely, who's Simon Cowell, but a nice Simon Cowell. Not that Simon. <laughs> he's real sweet. He's very wise, and well, my husband works, you know, he works for charity. He's a very, he's a lovely, he's a good person, and my goodness, that tribe needs it, because the tribe needs to grow up as well. The tribe are a load of barbarians. Slavery is still going on. And that's another thing about growing up. When we're little, we just think about ourselves. Me, 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 me. Everybody does. I did. My goodness. You see, I wasn't like Hiccup at all. I was a, a chatterbox, show-offy person. Much more like kamikaze in character, really. Never stop talking. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, the whole tribe needs to grow up. And they need Hiccup. They need somebody who's not just another great big barbarian. They need somebody who will lead them into a better way, a better way of being. That's another thing about growing up, is that we learn that there's a whole world out there as well. We need to grow up and how do we fit into this world. And even if we're not going to be a great leader, like Hiccup has got to be, he's got to be chief of this tribe one day. That's his father. I declare a blood feud. Stoic. You can see, <coughs> I'm going off on one again, but you can see, look how I use the pen just to make his beard. You know, uh, you know, really attacking it. I declare above you. This is another of the elders of the tribe. Uh, not another tribe. Big boobied Bertha. These bosoms have killed before, and they will kill again. <laughs> yeah? Um, I always draw these characters looking up. So you're like looking up at them, like poor old Hiccup is trying to look up to be that kind of person. But we're not always like our parents, are we? And that is difficult for Hiccup, and it's difficult for Stoic. Clemmy once, my daughter Clemmy, once came back from school and she said, I said, Clemmy, what are your favourite subjects at school? And she said, sport and maths. <laughs> and the thing was that Clemmy, I love my Clemmy, and she suddenly seemed very far away. <laughs> yeah, because I don't, it was like looking at her through the wrong end of the telescope, you know. So sometimes I think we want our children to be like us, not because we just are very vain and want them to be, but we want to be close to them. 
and suddenly they seem very far away. And what you have to learn, and it's hard, is you have to learn that it's fine for them to be, you know, you have to learn all about sport <laughs> and maths, you know, and, and try and, you know, and it's fine to let them go and be their own people. We all have to learn this. We all go through it, and it's often very difficult, particularly if we love our father or our mother, our parent, as I loved my <coughs> father. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. So th these are the th kind of things that I'm talking about uh, in the books. Uh, that's a type of dragon. Oh, yes. I'm just showing you also how children shows, uh, send me pictures of their own dragons that they make up. Um, I'm going to have to get on a bit because otherwise I'll have no time for questions. Um, uh, dragons, d different species of dragons that, um, that they send me. Oh, this is toothless. This is my toothless, okay? as opposed to the film's toothless. The film made him miles bigger. I don't know if you've seen the book, um, the film, but it's very different from the book. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, um, uh, about the ways in which it's different from the book. Uh, that was the major difference that they made, was that Toothless was made much bigger um, than he was in the book. Uh, <coughs> oh, yes, this is learning to speak Dragonese. I'm just going to teach you a little tiny bit of Dragonese. Um, Right, learning to speak Dragonese. Here are some common dragon phrases to get you started. Hiccup speaks Dragonese, and nobody else does because they haven't bothered to learn or to listen. <coughs> Here are some common dragon phrases to get you started. Near crapa in a dehusus pishu, which means no pooing inside the house, please. Mi mama no like it, yum yum on dibum which means my mother does not like to be bitten on the bottom. Pishu kindly gobe ut mi friundli, which means please would you be so kind as to spit out my friend. Okay. So through the books, you can learn the language of Dragonese. And you can see from the two bits that I've read out to you how different the writing is. I, I do a lot of different types of writing. One, I'm writing in a very epic style. Whoa. And the other one, it's kind of funny. I have these two styles going on through the books. I'm going to read you one more extract from uh, this book. Actually, I don't have time because I'm going to have no time to... No, I won't. I'll leave that because otherwise we won't have any time for questions. But, uh, uh, but I'm write, I write in lots of different styles during the course of the book um, uh, so that you can you know, convey a different mood. One will make you laugh, one will make you cry. I'm always making myself laugh and cry when I write the books. And my husband says, that's so vain. And I say, you know, you shouldn't laugh so I'll be sitting at the typewriter laughing really loudly at my own jokes. And he said, that's so vain. I say, well, if I can't make myself laugh, you know, or the endings, I always, oh, crying, I anything at the endings. Uh, and again, you've got to be able to move yourself to move other people. I'm going to have to rush here uh, <coughs> because the film, Eight years ago, no, seven years ago, DreamWorks came to me and they said they wanted to make a film of How to Train Your Dragon. I have to confess at this point, I never thought they'd do it. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't think they would do it. Uh, uh, you know, because films, they option films the whole time. It's so unlikely they're actually going to make it. Anyway, they did make it, to my surprise, and it came out in March. I'm just going to show you very quickly... Um, how this is Kamikaze, the girl character, 
how they changed it over the eight years. They spent eight years working on this film. It takes them eight years with a whole team of people right from the beginning, a director, a writer, a you know, producer, you know, right from the beginning for eight years. This is Kamikaze, who they changed the name to Astrid because Kamikaze is not very politically correct. And she's, she, here she is, fat, and she, she, at the beginning, she was more, she looks a bit of a bully there, actually, at the beginning. And then she, she, go, she see her transformation as she goes through the, the landscapes. They draw lots and lots of different landscapes. And this is rather a fantastical landscape. They decided they wanted to make it more realistic. Loads and loads of different paintings. You go to the studio, it's extraordinary, the amount of work they do that you never see. Um, uh, oh, this was a great baddie dragon. That was the big dragon at the end that they were going to do. Um, again, you can see how they've, they've used making up creatures a bit like I did, out of real creatures that existed. They couldn't do this one because it was too expensive. <laughs> They'd run out of money by that time. And th so they did this big dragon at the end instead. Um, and this is the, you know, the evolution of fish. Like the hiccup is the one who's really important. He started off really young, and then he's ended up uh, here. I think he looks far too pleased with himself, don't you think? To be hiccup. I mean, way too. Again, goes back to, would you care about that person? No. Kill him. <laughs> I th I, you need a vulnerability in your main character. You don't want him to be a wuss, obviously. He's got to be, anyway, but... Um, and that's stoic. Uh, and this is toothless. This is the biggest change that they made. And uh, it was a big change, yeah? And the producer flew all the way from Los Angeles just before they were going to make this change, about three years ago. You know it's bad news <laughs> when the producer flies all the way from Los Angeles. It was a bit tense, that meeting. <laughs> Uh, because I, you know, I wanted my little toothless, you know, and they wanted it. But you see, the thing is, again, having your book made into a film. I think I may be wrong. It's a bit like giving up your child for adoption. You sort of have to go with it. I think you have to go with it. It's a huge risk. <laughs> it's a massive risk. But if you start saying it's a bit like. I've had a lot of practice of this. It's a bit like if I say to David Tennant, who reads the book on tape, David, I really didn't see Kamikaze with a Welsh accent, yeah, which I didn't. I sort of stomp on his creativity a bit, don't I? I've got to slightly let it go. I've let, got to trust his creativity and let him do his own thing. It's a risk, and some people hate it. Some people really don't like the fact that the film is different from the book. Personally... I don't really mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I sort of, I'm, that's putting it too easily, actually. I do mind in one way, because it's my book, okay? It's my world. It's, you know, it's part of my past. It's my childhood, actually. But then in the other way, in a way, making it, uh, it's never going to be how I imagined it. Uh-oh. No, seriously. Am I nearing the end? Oh, gosh. Okay, I've got to let you have time for questions. Um, it's never going to be uh, uh, the same as I imagined it. So in a way, you have to let it go. And actually, I think I love the film, 
actually as itself as nothing to do with my books, but you know, I love the film. I really enjoyed the film. And that's pretty lucky to have a film made. I think often authors don't like the film that's made out of their books at all. I think I've been pretty lucky. I genuinely love the film. And I think it's very sincere. Um, you know, it's not a sort of, it's not a kind of, you know, throwaway film where you don't care. You mind. I minded and I loved it. I really enjoyed the film. Uh, and the fact that it's different, I think, is quite, in a way, is quite positive for uh, going forward because it, it means I can do my thing. Film is a very bossy medium. It, it kind of takes over. And the fact that it's so different, I think, means that I can carry on doing my own thing in my own sweet way without worrying about what they're doing. Like, for instance, Hiccup in the film, he loses his, his leg, which actually I think was a... I personally think that was kind of wonderful because it means you have a hero in a major Hollywood movie who's disabled. Isn't that fantastic? I don't think that's happened before. But that's their story. I'm not going to... Although I think it's kind of... I can see why it's appropriate for the Hiccup character. It's not something that's going to happen in my books, which are their own world. I'm now going to have to give you time for questions. What am I going to do? I could show you a clip from the film, or I could show you ask you, let you ask questions, or I could do both. What shall I do, Nicolette? The clip is very short. Do you want to see a clip of the film? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Oh, that's me and Gerard Butler. <laughs> <laughs> He's so scrummy. I'm not looking very cool there, am I? I go, oh, Gerard. <laughs> Uh, and that's me and the rest of the cast. Uh, Jay Baruchel, who's very like Hiccup in character, actually. Um, very geeky, sweet guy. OK, we're going to see the film, and then you can ask questions. I'm sorry, I've gone on. Are we having the film? Tell you what, why don't you ask while we're... Oh, yeah, while we're putting the film on. Does anybody want to ask a question in the meantime? Yes, there, darling. Animals? Yes, I, I love animals. I have two very naughty cats called Lily and Baloo. Uh, my daughters really want a dog, but we live in London, and I just don't think it's very fair to have a, a dog in London. Um, but I do love animals, and I would have loved to have had a dragon as a pet, <laughs> which is partly why I wrote the books, because you can make things happen that can't really happen in real life. Now we've got the film, I think, the clip. <laughs> oh. 
So I just want to say before Nicola said, I, I, I must say, I, I loved the film. I just, whenever I see it, I've seen it so many times, I have to say, it's one of those films, a bit like a book, you can see, you know, you can see again and again, and I still like it, you know. I mean, it's, still, it's very moving, and it's still got that sense of wonder, and even though Toothless is very different, I mean, he's a dragon I would want to own, their film, film Toothless. I, I just thought he was really, he's based on the animator's cat, by the way. The animator had a, had a cat, and he, he based the way. Anyway, ask your questions. Yes, you can ask me any question if you're having a book signed. I'll answer any question then as well. What made you say the name? What made the name Toothless? Toothless. Oh, because in the first. Um, in, the, in the first book, he doesn't have any teeth. He gets one tooth at the end and it falls out again. And, and it's also to, to mean that he's a dragon without any teeth. He's not very frightening. So all the other boys laugh at him. But Toothless may have some special... We still don't know when on book eight. But there may be something. There may be more to Toothless than meets the eye. We don't yet know. Uh, but we may find that out. Will there be a second movie? Yes, there will be a second movie. Yes, because the movie did really well in rather a nice, quiet way, actually, I felt. It, it did really, really well. So, um, so yes, there will be a movie. There, 2013, it's coming out. How long do dragons usually live for? Oh, well, that depends. <laughs> That depends on the dragon. Little nano dragons, a bit like insects, don't live for that long. But some of the bigger ones live for thousands and thousands of years. That's one of the things about dragons. And they can go into a sleep coma, which could mean way at the bottom of the ocean, where we don't know what there is. People have never even been down. There's some gulches at the bottom of the ocean. Maybe they're there, maybe in a sleep coma. Who knows? We don't know everything. I, that's what I love about the world. What's your favourite book you've written? Um, well, my favourite book I've written is always the last one because you put so much of your heart and soul into something that, you know, 
you get so caught up in the last one, it's always the last one. And I'm always trying to make the last one, the most recent one, better than the one before. Because I always find it really irritating when you're reading a series and the next one isn't as good. It's so annoying. So I always try and make the next one better. Uh, but that, oh, after a while, <laughs> after a while, oh, you have to climb the hill again. But, uh, but in a way, it's How to Train a Dragon. It was when I was first discovered the world, I suppose. So either the last one I wrote or How to Train Your Dragon. Um, what, why did you call the king and the na nano dragon Sigurastica? Sigurastica! Because, <laughs> good question. I've never been asked that one before. Because he's really, really teeny, but he has great, like many humans, he has great delusions of his own importance of the world. And Sigurastica is like a, a name that should be for something huge. And in fact, it's for this teeny, weeny little nanny dragon the size of a, of a grasshopper. And there are humans like that. Do you know what the next film's going to be called? Uh, no. Hang on. Who? Where, I'm yeah. not sure. Oh, he hello, John. Do I know what the next film's going to be called? No, I don't. I mean, you know, they tend to call them How to Train Your Dragon don't they? <laughs> Shrek 2, How to Train Your Dragon 2. I don't know what they're going to call it, but I should think it will be something like How to Train Your Dragon 2 or Dragon 2 or that's what they tend to do with those kind of films, don't they? Um, don't you think that the terrible terrors in the film look more like Toothless in the book? Oh, uh, yeah, I certainly do. And you know why that, that is? Because the terrible terror was the design for Toothless. For how many years were they making that movie? Seven years. Five years of them making that movie. That was the design for Toothless. Aha. So that is why. That is why the terrible terror looks like. And then, two years ago, as I say, the producer flies out and says, we've had another plan. Yes, darling. Can you speak Dragonese fluently? Oh. <laughs> well. I have, because I'm a right old saddo, I, I have written out a whole Dragonese dictionary so that I get it right. I'm not that good at languages myself, not like my kids or my husband, but, but I do have a, a, cheat, a sheet um, so I, can, I know what all the words are and it does work vaguely as a language and I am always, look, my editor is right there. Ha ha! I am always trying to get them to produce a Dragonese dictionary with no story in it. Actually, partly my fault as well. I always relent at the end and think, I've got to put a story in, because I think you might have cheated with that story. But would you, show of hands, who would buy a Dragonese dictionary with no story in it? <laughs> OK. Um, of the parents who are going to be getting it, would you think that's a good plan? How many? Yes, 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 yes. Ooh. Who here thinks you always need a story? Anne, you are in a minority. <laughs> <laughs> now you're all going to have to go get it. If ever we do bring it out, you'll have to put, yeah. <clears throat> okay. It will all be all you're your, your doing today <laughs> if this ever happens. I'm really sorry that oh, all I'm the rest sorry. of you with your arms up didn't get a I'm chance sorry. to ask your questions. But uh, do come and talk to Cressida. Ask them in person. She's going to be signing some books in the bookshop. And uh, it just, just remains for me to say thank you very much, all of you, for your wonderful questions you. and for your attention. To Cressida for producing books that are nothing like the Financial Times. <laughs> and, uh, and to ask her to say goodbye in Dragonese. Oh!
Toedeloon, see you soon! Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.